Thanks for downloading today's UW Alumni Voices episode. I'm your host, Josh Van Campen. Today we speak with Marka Reed, Innovation Catalyst for Tennis Australia. Marka talks about how innovation is impacting not only the world of tennis, but the world of sports. He talks about his time speaking at the MIT Sloan Conference, and he also talks about the four main projects he's currently focusing on, which amazingly is showing how much impact science is having on the world of sport in Australia. Podcast starts now. Now, Mark, before we get into talking about your tennis career, I'd love to learn about your time here at UWA because you studied a PhD, which isn't exactly the easiest of choices for people choosing to study. <laughs> well, I had a bigger choice um, before doing the PhD, and that was to come across to Perth. So I was a, a Melbourne boy. Um, I went to RMIT as an undergrad student. Loved undergrad, um, loved sport, uh, always had my heart set on wanting to study sport. So it was kind of a um, pretty natural fit. Um, and uh, at the end of that, I had a bit of a taste of the workplace. I uh, wanted to do a bit more study and um, Perth beckoned. So it's most people in Perth, you know, see Melbourne and, you know, they want to travel to Melbourne and they want to get out of a small town like Perth. It's very rare to hear too often people coming from Melbourne to Perth. So what attracted you to study at UWA? Look, having now spent um, the best part of um, the last two decades here, um, I don't get it. I don't get the um, the resistance of Melbourneites toward Perthans or, or Perth itself. Uh, I love the place, but um, tracing my own steps back 20 years, um, as I said, mentioned, uh, gone through undergrad, wanted to do some further study. And at that time, I was really passionate and still am about technique in sport. So it wouldn't matter the sport, um, you know, be it basketball, golf, cycling, running, you name it. I just um, love the idea and the pursuit of technical excellence. So what I did back then as a young buck was trying to identify the person in the world that had done the most amount of research about sports technique. And lo and behold, came across... Um, UWA and the, the lineage back then, you know, Brian Blanksby and in particular a guy called Bruce Elliott, Professor Bruce Elliott. So it, in, in many respects, it wasn't so much about UWA mm. or Perth. It was about, wow, here's this guy. I've got to go and learn from him. Is that what most people are attracted to when they do a PhD? It is following the person, not necessarily the institution? I don't know. I think everyone's journey is a little bit different. I mean, at that time, um, as I said, I I'd had undergrad, I would had a first taste of working in pro sport through um, a scholarship, coaching scholarship with the Australian Institute of Sport. So I'd travelled to Wimbledon, I'd kind of been to the French Open with some players, um, and I didn't play to that high level myself. So it really opened my eyes to, wow, um, you know, this is really significant. Um, and if I was going to carve a career out in tennis, given that I wasn't a past player, mm. I needed other strings to my bow. Yep. So for me, I hadn't even thought about a PhD at that time. It was literally, I came to Perth to study honours. Um, so it was a one year deal. Um, I came across in February. I think I'd shacked up at Curry Hall. Daryl Foster mm. kind of helped me out, got there, Spent 10 days at Curry Hall, figured, wow, this isn't for me <laughs> for a number of different reasons. 
then shacked up in a shared house. That wasn't for me. And then ended up um, with another mate from Melbourne, actually, who came over for something similar um, and lived in Netherlands. That's amazing. Now, can you walk us through your PhD? What exactly did you work on and how long did it take to finish? Yeah, so quickly, I mean, honours, as I said, that was the starting point. I looked at the a comparison between the single-handed and double-handed backhand in tennis. So, I mean, in our sport, that's something that's changed over the last three decades. In the 80s, 18 out of the top 20 used a single-hander. These days, 18 out of the top 20 use a double-hander. So I was interested in a technical comparison there. Mm -hmm. um, I did that honours year, um, went to the Sydney Olympics, headed overseas for four years and worked you know, in international tennis, which was awesome. Um, but again, kind of craved knowing more. So I came back to UWA again, um, keeps on drawing me back. It's like a bit of a <laughs> magnet. Um, so, and, and at that time I looked at um, the tennis serve and wanted to understand the mechanical factors associated with optimizing surf performance, but also mm -hmm. reducing injury. That's a lot to take in there. Um, yeah. <laughs> oh, so, sorry, mate, I was uh, skipping ahead, <laughs> uh, or, or maybe not. <laughs> no, no, no. Maybe I was being too expansive. Uh, no, 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 no. Listeners may have turned off by now. Not at all, not at all. Now, you're clearly one of the international tennis's preeminent voices in sport and coaching science. Uh, currently, the innovation catalyst for Tennis Australia. Compared to other sports, how much does tennis rely on innovation? I think we've been really traditional um, for, for a lot of our history. Um, we're obviously one of the early professional sports as well. So... It, it may relate to that somewhat. Um, increasingly though, as professional sports like our own get into the entertainment business, um, which is kind of the category in which we fit in many respects, when you think about the Australian Open and the like, we're becoming more innovative um, through necessity. And that's not so much in the delivery of the sport, perhaps, but certainly in its presentation um, from a broadcast and digital point of view. Have you looked back at, from your role there with Tennis Australia, have you looked at from an innovation standpoint, like are you amazed at where you are at this point when you look back on, wow, I didn't think we'd be here or, you, or is there maybe a sense of frustration? Oh, I wish we were further ahead from an innovation standpoint. Um, not for, neither really. I, I think uh, most of the um, folk that I've come across that kind of play in this sandpit called um, innovation um, <laughs> are probably um, have this appetite or thirst for something new, more innovative, um, mm. more amazing. So that kind of pursuit never wanes. Um, and at the same time, I don't think people uh, get altogether frustrated because they understand that be it whether you're innovating processes or um, you're trying to take people along for the ride, oftentimes these things can take time, particularly in corporates like our, like our own. Can you learn from other sports? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, and look, dating back even 15 years, I, I reckon Cricket Australia in, in our context within um, our borders um, were really progressive in a lot of what they did in athlete performance. Mm -hmm. um, they're probably ahead of the curve in many respects and in certain areas still are. Um, and then you've got the likes of the AFL, which is obviously a commercial powerhouse, um, do a bunch of things really, really well. So, you know, even within 
Australia, there's a lot to learn. And sticking with the innovation theme, can we see what the future of the sport looks like that relies on athletes traveling the world? Because, you know, I guess we're going through the COVID-19 pandemic at, at the moment. Is there a future where, from an innovation standpoint, that tennis might have to adapt to some other sports? Yeah, interesting question and thought. I think one thing that tennis has never quite nailed or um, pursued as wholesomely as someone like a golf is a regional tour. So when you think about golf, um, you've obviously got the US, the Japanese, the European, they've done a really good job of um, creating opportunities for professional players closer to home. Mm -hmm. uh, tennis hasn't been anywhere near as effective in that regard. Uh, whilst we carve out really lucrative careers for perhaps a small minority, um, it doesn't really flow a long way down um, the ranking list. So, you know, that, that's not um, an easy um, scenario to overcome, if you like, because it's kind of, kind of emerged from the ground up because um, it looks, you know, from the top down be really problematic. Um, but it'd be fascinating. I reckon it's uh, 100 years time, maybe we're there. I can't see it happening <laughs> in the next 10. <laughs> Let's talk about your coaching because you coached British Canadian tennis player Greg Rosetsky, who was once ranked fourth in the world for a couple of years. Can you walk us yep. through the life of a tennis player, but also the life as a coach on tour? Yeah, sure. So that, I was really lucky. That was a period of time where, funnily enough, um, a name that might be familiar to yourself, Josh, um, Pat Cash actually introduced me to Greg um, way back in 2001. So I worked with Cashy. Um, and Greg initially as the fitness trainer. And obviously mm. at UWA, I'd done sports science. I was comfortable in that world of strength and conditioning. It was kind of in my wheelhouse in tennis as well. So grabbed it with both hands. I was already over in Spain working for the International Federation. So it was, you know, um, too good an opportunity to pass up. So um, worked with Pat and um, Greg for that year in 2001. Um, another coach stepped in, stepped in um, 2002, Sven Groneveld, who famous coach, worked with a bunch of really famous players, um, Sharapova, uh, Tommy Haas, you know, you name it. Um, and that was fantastic to work along, alongside Sven. And then in 2003, um, and you're already getting a sense of what tennis can be like, a bit of a revolving door for coaches. Um, Greg asked me whether I'd like to um, play that role as well as the fitness. So coaching wow. and fitness, if you like. So in answer to your question, um, the, the really cool bits are that you see the world, obviously. Um, if you're working with a high profile player and someone who's successful, um, you're obviously staying in some amazing places as well. Um, if you enjoy the cut and thrust of high performance or professional sport, and the pressure that goes with it, mm. um, it's awesome. Um, it's a very unique experience working, you know, coaching your boss. <laughs> now, you're employed by this guy to get him better. But at the same time, if you're not getting him better or he's not liking what you are or are not saying, um, you know, uh, the notion of a uh, termination period can... <laughs> kind of goes out the window so the um so that's really unique and the cool bits the the bits that are more challenging are that it can be a little bit like groundhog groundhog day 
So you're literally waking up, smashing out breakfast, hitting the practice courts, hanging around potentially the club, waiting for a match, coming back home and it's on repeat again. So tennis players are playing around 100 matches a year. So that was something that I didn't love about the tour. Is there one moment that sticks out for you during your time coaching, Greg? Yeah, yeah. Um, he was playing Andy Roddick's second round, I think, Wimbledon. Um, you know, prime time. Uh, and, you know, there was, um, a, you know, obviously high-pressure environment because it's in front of his home fans. Uh, he lost the first two sets, I think, in tiebreakers close. He was 5-2 up in the third. Um, and it was 15 all um, on his serve. Um, so literally, from memory, I think he was serving for that third set and, you know, who knows what could have happened thereafter. But um, 15 all and he hit the second serve from memory and the someone from the crowd called the ball out. So it wasn't the lines person, it was someone from the crowd. And Andy bunted the return back in play and Greg didn't play the return. You know, play the, play the third shot if you mm. like. So, um, you know, long story short, massive meltdown. Primetime TV, he hardly won a point out of the next 20 or so to lose the match. Wow. Um, think he got fined, you know, tens of thousands of dollars for the number of expletives and um, so on that were coming out of his mouth as well. I think he actually got a commercial out of it because he was so potty mouth that um, <laughs> someone in the UK actually um, signed him up for a gig. But, you know, that was um, talk about a cauldron at Wimbledon against a massive name at the time, highly anticipated contest and the athlete you're working with and have some responsibility over. Um, essentially, at that moment, um, wasn't able to deal um, with the, the challenges that came his way. Um, and then as much as I could do from the box, which is limited, there was that sense of kind of helplessness um, and feeling that you'd almost let him down. And so what was your role post-match then? Oof. Yeah. Um, <laughs> survive the day, you know, in a way. Like, obviously, when an athlete has gone through um, that kind of experience that they experience a range of emotions at the other, at the other end of it. Mm -hmm. um, and part of that is probably, it's a little bit like grieving, right? Um, you experience it, you're still um, super energized and frustrated immediately post-match. You probably go through this period then of, um, reflection where you're disappointed, not just in the result, but yourself. Um, that may spill over into, um, you know, some embarrassment even um, as you wrestle with, you know, why did I behave the way that I did? Mm. Why couldn't I pull myself out of it? Um, hopefully there's not too much blame going on at that point in time. Mm -hmm. um, and then on the other side of it, I think the best players are able to then pick the eyes out of what they can learn from that, um, move on, make sure it doesn't happen again. Is your role as being the coach, was there a part of it where you had to be somewhat of a sports psychologist as well for your player? Yeah, I think that's, um, and particularly in individual sports, um, and it's true of team sports as well, no doubt. But um, I think when you think about athlete, athletic performance anyway, generally it's distilled down into the technical realm, 
tactical, um, physical, and then psychological. And you'll hear countless coaches or athletes um, comment on the importance of the mental component of the game. So you do, you do spend a lot of your time um, trying to get um, athletes into good spaces, um, trying to take care of business yourself as a coach as well. Um, but yeah, Greg was at the time anyway, he was a seasoned player. Um, I think he was disappointed um, in not just the result, um, but more so um, thinking back, he could have handled himself um, more effectively and potentially achieved a different result as well. And what about you as a coach? Have you always been a natural leader or is it something that you've evolved in over time? I love coaching. I love it. I love, um, as I mentioned at the start, I love sport. I grew to love UWA as well. Every time I walk through that joint, I'm like, wow, this is one wicked university. This is like, <laughs> like honestly, in Australia, maybe UQ, UWA, you just go there and, you know, it, it gives me tingles. Um, that might sound silly, but it, it, it genuinely does. I love sport. Love you, I Love um, and love coaching. Love that side of it. Love connecting with um, people, challenging myself to try and communicate more effectively, find other ways through, mm. um, building a relationship with someone and trying to achieve something together, notwithstanding that at the end of the day, it's on, you know, it's the athlete that's getting the job done. Um, funnily enough, I coached, uh, coached, I'm not sure you can call it that, but helped out at, um, my pre-primary, so my five-year-old's minky hockey session this morning. And I love it, love it, just the same. Just the same. It's a um, awesome. very, very different environment for 30 minutes, but um, yeah, I, I love, to see, love to see the kids having fun and, and trying to get better. Can you ever switch off as a coach? Can you ever just enjoy watching tennis or enjoy watching your kid play? Or do you have to analyze things? And- no, yeah, I can, I can, I just, um, as I mentioned, I love sport. Um, I love playing. I don't do it as much as I, I guess, once, once did. Um, and not that I was very good at it, but I love watching. I love seeing people try and achieve and then do some remarkable stuff. Uh, it's just, you know, it makes your heart warm. And what about sacrifices? Because for a lot of elite athletes, there's a lot of sacrifice for them to become an elite athlete. And for you to be a coach of one of these elite athletes, no doubt you had to make some sacrifices. So can you just share maybe with Gregor and other players that you've coached, what sacrifices they made to become an elite athlete, but also the sacrifices you made to be their coach? Oh, look, the sec- I think each athlete, um, the common thread really is there, is that they've made, um, as you say, sacrifices along the way. Oftentimes they're unique to the athlete. Um, what becomes really important, I think, particularly during the latter teenage or adolescent years into early adulthood is the um, resilience or the self-regulation skills that they're able to build up. So there's no dependency or less dependency on significant others to shepherd them through. We still play a really important role and so forth, but um, that sense of independence, um, ability to um, really withstand challenges and therefore make sacrifices becomes all important for a lot of elites. Um, From a coaching point of view, yeah, I think, look, the, I, look, I think after UWA honours, even taking it back to there, as I said, I, I wanted to pursue coaching, went across to the um, International Tennis Federation and I just loved it so much that I think the offer at the time, and this is when I was 22, 
was to head to um, Valencia, other side of the world, didn't know Spanish. Yeah, who, who was I going to talk to over there? And I think the offer was $12,000 for the year, um, which you know, it, it allowed me to live on some tuna and noodles for <laughs> the, best part, the best part of 12 months. Um, but I guess the sacrifice then was that, you know, at a young age, um, you, you're kind of trying to pursue your own dream, um, leaving behind friends and family, um, which is, you know, really significant because mm. I, I love both of those groups. Um, that'd be the most, um, most immediate one that springs to mind in, in my own career. So let's talk about your 100 peer review. Well, I mean, I think, sorry, you've published over 100 peer reviewed books and articles. How much time, dedication, but also patience goes into your published work? Yeah, again, it's something that that, that constant pursuit of um, trying to get better um, and learning and then helping others, uh, yeah, I guess, or bring others along for the journey or helping others um, along for the ride. That, that's part of trying to get the information out there. So it, with that in mind, um, yeah, effort goes in. Um, fortunately enough, even with my work at Tennis Australia, I've been able to um, factor that in as part of the role in many respects, where we partner with different universities around the country. We support um, upwards of 10, stu 10 PhD students at any given time. Um, so we actually have a, you know, something of a production line as it relates to um, getting research or scientific outputs into the marketplace. You talked about helping people along the line. Has there been moments through your career where people just simply haven't wanted any help from you? And does that cause any frustration or do you just kind of just move on? Uh, absolutely. So uh, thinking back to 2008, I started um, with Tennis Australia in a role of sports science and medicine manager. So at the time, uh, Cricket Australia, as I mentioned, um, they were really progressive. They were the only real group in Australia that had a sports science and medicine unit set up for their high performance athletes and coaches. So we kind of followed them. We kind of, um, for the most part, imitated their model, um, learnt from what they did, try to do it better. But as part of that journey, you were trying to introduce something new, new way of thinking, new way of doing, um, challenging the status quo and you're doing that with a bunch of stakeholders who hadn't previously been exposed to it as a concept and certainly weren't on board with it as <laughs> as a way forward so the need to develop nurture relationships um, slowly layer in information that would help them mm -hmm. do their jobs better because at the end of the day, it's got to be about that. You're delivering a service to an athlete or a coach. If it's not helping them get better, um, even if they don't necessarily know it at the time, um, it, you know, you've got to question what you're doing. So, is, is there times when, you know, I kind of talk about patience there as well in regards to your published work previously? Is there times when, is there a time frame on some of these processes with trying to, from a start to finish? Um, time frame. I think any change, you know, depending on the, the size or the quant of it, um, is going to take some time. Mm. So I, I think what becomes important is 
that you're able to distill some of that change down into um, bite-size um, elements that are more easy to tick off along the way. So sure. you've kind of got these gateposts and milestones that everyone feels like they're making progress towards. Mm -hmm. um, if it's just this almighty lofty goal in the distance, this is what we're going to look like, then I do think you end up getting um, resistance and ultimately probably leads to failure. Yeah, I just wonder about the time frame because is there times when you think, oh, I should stop this or I'll just push it out a little bit longer because I guess the biggest fear for most people when it comes to trying to implement change is, you know, quitting before you can actually implement it. Yeah, so I think, you know, even in my current role, one of the reflections or learnings that I've probably had is um, with in the software world where you've got these agile ways of working, where you've got the hypothesis, you're essentially making some assumptions, but you're trying to test that hypothesis and have really clear kind of deliverables or signposts in mind. I think that is something that high performance or professional sport could um could benefit from doing um, more wholesomely. Um, it introduces some real accountability um, into the conversation that can be missing um, at times. Now, I want to talk about the MRT Sloan Analytics Conference, which presented at in 2019. Now, this conference has seen people like the NBA Commissioner Adam Silver, hip hop artist Meek Mill, WWE President Michelle Wilson, but also Barack Obama has also spoken at this conference. It's become and then us. Yeah, and then you. Wow. Uh, talk about falling off a cliff. Hey, wow. But, it, but it's become one of the largest student-led conferences in the world. Can you share what you presented on at the conference? Yeah, so we've been up twice. We've um, Fortunately, we, we won the thing, believe it or not, back in 2015 or 16. Awesome. Collaboration with the Australian Institute of Sport and a really bright guy out of Disney, um, Pat Lucy, who's one of the world's preeminent data scientists in sport. So that then, um, it was all about predicting what's going to happen next within the point. And the reason we wanted to do that was that in the sport of tennis, generally most of the stats in tennis describe the serve or the return or then the last point in a rally. So you know, a winner or an error. Mm. But generally a winner or an error for the most part of the product of something that happens before that, you know, you're setting up the point with um, some shots that might occur two or three um, exchanges earlier. So that first pursuit was described as a thin, ed thin edge of the wedge. Um, it was around, as I say, predicting what's happening next in a rally and identifying within that the tipping point in a rally. So Novak's against Rafa, it's a 15 ball rally, but what's actually the most crucial shot that's played in that 15 ball rally? It's unlikely to be the last one. So once we're able to identify what that is, let's call it shot 11, we're then able to better understand the decision-making processes that go into Rafa deciding to play that forehand down the line rather than cross court. And with this data, are you sharing it with the elite athletes themselves or their coaches? Uh, yeah. So, and again, some have been more progressive than others. Um, in Australia, um, the likes of Ash Barty and her team um, were one of the very early adopters um, of the performance analysis technology set up within Tennis Australia. Internationally, um, for a couple of years there, we did work for Andy Murray um, as part of his um, 
path to the Australian Open. Mm -hmm. um, so he's got a, a really progressive team again. And, and then you've got, I think, the likes of Alexander Zverev, um, Simona Halep even, and, and so forth that have, um, you know, over time become more intrigued by what data has to offer. Now let's go back to the MIT conference. Have you got any favorite memories from your time there and how important is it to present at that conference? How important? Um, I'm probably not the best person to answer that question, <laughs> but um, uh, favorite memories, you know what? I think most people that go to conferences talk about the network and um, opportunities to catch up with others. Um, and I think that's true of, of mm -hmm. this one too. Uh, when I did go, um, I ended up passing through um, a former student um, who now heads up sports science for the New York Yankees. He's a UWA grad too. He, um, Dave Whiteside, a gem. Um, he did his PhD with us at Tennis Australia, landed a plum job hmm. at New York Yankees. Uh, he's a ripper. So I went through um, their base in Florida, checked that out, fascinating. And then was able to pass through the San Antonio Spurs. And wow, talk about, and sorry, before that, Boston Celtics. So talk about um, some polar opposites in terms of environments. So of that MIT trip, it wasn't so much the conference that I have a lasting memory of, but it was the contrast between the Spurs facility and someone like Boston Celtics facility and how we might make sense of that and apply that within Tennis Australia. Is it ever daunting for you going into some of these major organisations? No. <laughs> <laughs> they don't know me. I'm just some guy <laughs> off the street who happens to know someone within, <laughs> within their walls. So, uh, you know, in, in, again, in my experience, as long as you're not making a goose of yourself, hmm. um, most people in professional sport um, understand that um, others are trying to learn. They might want to come and have a look. Um, and as long as you're not getting in the way, most people are really accommodating. Yeah, I guess because sometimes I feel like maybe when you go to places like this, you put them on a pedestal. Is that ever a case for you that we maybe someone you've met and you put them in a bit of pedestal rather than I guess treating them like any other normal person? Uh, probably all those names you mentioned at the MIT Sloan conference other than us. <laughs> no, uh, um, I'm sure that's happened, but it doesn't, uh, doesn't spring to mind immediately mm. anyway. So. Yeah. Now, you're currently focusing on four main projects there at Tennis Australia. So let's start with the Gaming Insight Group. So Tennis Australia in partnership with Victoria University. What yep. are your goals for the project? So that essentially fell out of that MIT um, Sloan conference where um, the sport of tennis not so long ago um, was rated by ESPN as the second worst sport on the planet in terms of its use of analytics. Wow. Um, I think we're only in front of boxing. So, and to be honest, having watched some um, recent broadcast of boxing, I reckon they may have um, jumped ahead of us. Mm -hmm. So we might be the worst. So the, the Game Insight Group was largely born out of that. It was the idea of trying to get some really bright minds together in the world of data science, in, in the world of data science and trying to create um, new ways of um, explaining what happens on court um, in terms of, why players are so good at what they do and why some players win and other players don't. Um, 
So really trying to turn data into stories that matter for fans, players and coaches. And one of the other projects is the Racket Room. Can you give us some insight into that? Yeah, so Racket Room. So believe it or not, around um, 80% of players, and you might be one of these, Josh, but 80% <laughs> of people that play tennis use the wrong gear for them. And by the wrong gear, I mean that, you know, um, there's other options out there in the market that would allow them to play far better mm-hmm. and with far less injury risk than the gear they're using at the moment. So there's a few issues within that though. Um, most people that play, play, play tennis don't realize that. Mm. Um, their primary point of contact for advice is often um, tennis coaches. And by their own admission, they often don't understand the effect of equipment well enough. And then you go to retailers and oftentimes the retail experience in tennis isn't like it is in golf where you're getting clubs fitted to you. It's just, here's Rafa's racket, it's on the wall, here's yep. Fed's racket, here's Serena, mm-hmm. pick it up and you tap it and away you go. So the racket room was really all about trying to get the right tennis racket and set of strings in as many players' hands as we possibly can. So uh, we built out a digital recommender, um, which is great, proof of concept in the market. Um, and we're now building out how that can connect to a retail experience that allows more players to make better decisions. And is it primarily targeted at elite athletes or is it for the casual players as well? No, prim- primarily the casual player. Mm. Um, the elite, we slightly different approach, um, but the likes of, particularly those players based out of Melbourne, so the Sam Stozers, Tanasi Kokonakis, um, Dylan Alcott, um, they'll go through our tennis lab in Melbourne, um, which is a bespoke indoor Hawkeye court that allows us to, you know, track the shape of their ball, all their KPIs as it relates to hitting. Um, And then in the engineering kind of headquarters alongside, um, the team's able to um, modify their racket Mm. and string set up so that they're literally immediately able to set back out on court and um, get a sense of, how the new setup performs for them. So that's more akin to the golf experience. Is there a different racket required for like a player like Kokonakis than to Dylan Orcott, who, for those that don't know, is one of the greatest, if not the greatest wheelchair tennis player of all time? Uh, yeah, 100%. Different, different racket and string setup for every player. Mm. So one of the things that was fascinating with Dylan even last year, and Dylan, bear in mind, he's been really successful for a period of time. Um, but I think he won three slams last year. And before the French, um, he went through the tennis lab, Lyndon Krauss, um, who's a PhD student um, from a different uni, but another example of a sports science student who went through, did his PhD and has been able to stay on with Tennis Australia. Um, you know, Dylan, his coach, got a hold of Lyndon, went through the lab and they dropped their string tension, I think it was by 10 pounds. So let's say from 52 to 42 kind of unprecedented, mm. but it was on the back of having some science to support the decision. And you hear Dylan talk about that experience and also the decision now, and it's kind of like second nature to him. He's like, oh yeah, but you know, why wouldn't I do that? Rewind the clock 12 or 15 months back and it's like, you gotta be crazy. So it's a cool example of science cutting through. It's amazing. Now, one of the projects you're working on is the architecture of kids' sport. Can you explain more about what that entails? <laughs> That's a bit of gobbledygook, huh? Um, 
look, one, and I mentioned Minky Hockey, right? Um, mm. So this isn't so, um, it, it's tennis specific. We've probably done as much work as anyone um, in the world of sport on it. Um, but it relates to every single sport that you see your kids play. Um, and by that, I mean the way that skill is developed amongst young children is often a product of not just, you know, instruction by a coach, but also the environment in which they compete. So, um, yeah, take an extreme example, a five-year-old kid trying to learn tennis on a full-size tennis court with a full-size racket. Just doesn't make sense, right? Mm -hmm. But then how do you go about landing on dimensions of the court, um, some recommendations regarding racket that make sense? And the same applies to say AFL and junior football. So what size ground, what size ball should a nine-year-old be playing on and with? Most people, when you ask them, um, most people probably haven't thought about it before. You go, oh, what does it matter? Um, but, though, but then when prompted to speak about a little, uh, think about a little um, in, in more depth, go, well, they probably shouldn't play on an adult size ground. And then the follow-up question tends to be, okay, well, what ground, size ground should they play on? And well, I don't know. So that's kind of, that's where science can help as well. So we did some really, I think, good work with Cricket Australia in 2015. Um, they came to our research group within kind of tennis along with Damien Farrow and Tim Buzzard because we'd done a lot of work in tennis um, and asked us to put together a research project so that Cricket Australia could push out some recommendations regarding pitch length, um, type of ball, um, number of fielders on the ground, ground size. Um, so essentially have science inform that policy um, and from that point, they actually rolled it out nationally. It's still not perfect, but it's a damn sight better than um, what was in place beforehand. Is there any examples of where science has impacted junior sport where people would actually have no idea that science or research has made it? Yeah. That's one. So if you, if um, mums, dads, brothers, sisters are listening to this and they're going down to watch cricket in summer, and they watch their kids, you know, their eight-year-old, nine-year-old, three to 12 and 14, playing in these kind of modified setups. That's literally a, um, a case of where uh, Cricket Australia commissioned some scientific research, scientific research produced certain results. Cricket Australia then sculpted them to deliver the competitive experience that they currently are. Do you think science is going to make more of an impact in sport post the COVID-19 pandemic? Because we've seen here in Australia where a third of uh, participants in winter sport have dropped off due to the pandemic. Do you think that science is going to make an impact on possibly bringing well, kids back to sport? I don't know that COVID will. I think what will happen um, is sports are getting better, better, better and better or industry is, I think the sports industry, um, at understanding where science can add value. Mm. Um, and look, it may be a little bit different for the for physiology, chemistries and so forth that may have transformative, the potential for transformative impact. Um, but in a lot of the other sciences, um, it, it may not necessarily be that case. Be the case. Yeah. Um, so as industry gets better there, 
Um, they're able to make better decisions regarding how they partner with universities mm. and science, and therefore science delivers better value back to uni, uh, back to industry. Beautiful. Now, the last thing you're working on is computer vision and sensor application for broadcasts. Yeah, so that was actually, you, you touched on that um, MIT uh, Sloan stanza back in 2019, and that was actually with a computer vision application in mind. Um, it wasn't the one I, I mentioned with the Disney collaboration. And, and that was with a view to building out to recognition technology that would allow us to quantify um, the emotions that players were experiencing in broadcast. Mm -hmm. So we got this close, you know, within milliseconds, if you like, of putting that to air at the LAVIC back in 2019, uh, sorry, 2018. Um, and yeah, well, I mean, didn't live to tell the tale. Um, be interesting had it gone to it. Um, but we had seven different emotions. Uh, we were able to provide them a rating scale from zero to 100. Um, we had discussions with Channel 9 on it. And Channel 9, um, rightly so, identified a bunch of weaknesses uh, in the build and in the product. So great learning, um, learning opportunity for myself um, and others involved, where we'd essentially built, we'd fallen into our own idea, um, built something that we thought was really cool and convinced ourselves of that. And then got to a point where now having the conversation with the client. Um, so this is nine. And they're kind of in no uncertain terms pointing out to you that guys, you haven't built something we can use here. Mm. Um, so it was a little bit dispiriting at the time, but it's kind of meant that in that world computer vision, uh, the guys have been far, more centric um, consumer focused in in the infancy so actually getting a better sense of what the digital world might use um, before building it so when channel nine provided you that feedback was there any part of you that you know took it a bit personal oh every part of me not a, <laughs> not, a, not some part of me every, every part of me. <laughs> in love with our idea uh, yeah incredibly humbling uh, walk out of that meeting or stay in that meeting as it gives me meeting um, with the tail between your legs the guys were great about it um, uh, but nevertheless it was you did feel like a goof now we're now we're running out of time so one final question well two-part question what does the future of sport look like to you? And if you could give some advice to, you know, a current student or a prospective student or a recent graduate that is looking to pursue in your, you know, in, in your line of work, what, what advice would you provide? Um, I'll go first. I think to a prospective student coming through and look, we're all, I guess, a product of our own experience. Just if you want to work in pro sport, um, and, you know, be it as a coach um, in the kind of media realm, uh, you name it, or as a support staff member, admin even, um, I just think you to try and seize opportunities to get exposed really early. Um, even if 
that's not delivering money into your hip pocket or anything yeah. like that. That exposure, that um, uh, opportunity to learn from us, um, opportunity put, to put your best foot forward, mm -hmm. even if people aren't necessarily expecting it, um, it's priceless. So, no, um, that'd be my first and only real bit of advice um, to someone starting out. Uh, in terms of what the future of sport looks like, um, I think that we're on a fascinating ride where, you know, the pro sports are still attracting significant commercial dollars. Um, there's an increasing gap between the have and the have nots. So what that looks like forward is going to be fascinating. As each sport gets that around, the opportunity for esports and so forth, um, the melding of those worlds, the physical and the digital into the um, fidgetal, so to speak, um, that, that's gonna be a ride to enjoy. And then lastly, I think specifically related to the work that I do, um, I think you'll see more and more sports entering the world of venture capital, mm -hmm. um, trying to partner strategic with different brands in that ecosystem with a view to using their events to diversify revenue streams and so forth by taking stakes in businesses that are valued traditionally through the um, supplier-client relationship. So I think that's wonderful. that's coming. Barcelona's mm -hmm. already got their eyes in the fire there, a bunch of um, US franchises. It's something we're looking at. I think, um, yeah, again, uh, exciting kind of new career for a bunch of people working in sport. It's exciting. Now, Marco, that's all the time we've got, but if people want to find out more about the projects you're working in or get in contact with you, where's the best place to visit? I think they could drop Barack Obama a line. Um, <laughs> it was, uh, <laughs> I, uh, they could probably just ping me on email, mreid, M-R-E-I-D, at tennis.com.au. Perfect. Marco, thank you so much. Thanks, mate.